Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, along with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. You may notice that this is a day later than usual, but for a very good reason. Uh, Eric, congratulations to you, to your wife Robin, as your daughter Olivia had her bat mitzvah this past weekend. I'm sure that must have been exciting and exhausting and emotional and all kinds of everything all at once i suspect um obviously a tradition that stretches back generation upon generation upon generation upon generation but what previous generations didn't have to deal with was being a boxing podcaster in a social media age on a weekend that featured perhaps the biggest boxing event of the year so uh how easy was it to go this is the question that matters to me <laughs> well, yes. well this fundamental moment in your daughter's life is taking place how easy was it to go spoiler free for much of the weekend while you had these far more important issues to deal with <laughs> no you are focused on the key question coming out of, <laughs> out of saturday and uh yeah i was not optimistic kieran but uh somehow some way i pulled it off uh the the bat mitzvah started at pretty much exactly the same time as Joshua Ruiz. So I turned off Twitter notifications, uh, warned almost everybody in my boxing life over the previous couple of days leading up to that not to text me. I really only had one close call. During the bat mitzvah party, I was standing at the bar next to someone who knows I cover boxing, and he said, did you hear who won the fight? And I quickly said, don't say anything. I'm trying to avoid the result. (laughs) And we were all good. And that, friends, is how you phrase a question for a spoiler phobe, or for anyone, yes. really. I, I think a good rule of thumb, always assume someone doesn't want spoilers unless right. informed otherwise. Uh, but, yeah, I guess he kind of spoiled for me that it wasn't a draw. Uh, he, he strongly uh, suggested someone won with, did you hear who won the fight? But so many people would say, did you hear about the Joshua fight or something yeah. like that? And then it's kind of ruined. Uh, but uh, but anyway, no, I got home around midnight. Uh, I knew nothing, turned the fight on, watched it unspoiled, and then uh, got to see all the Showtime fights unspoiled on Sunday afternoon. Victory was mine, my friend. Wait, 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 wait. You got home at midnight, turned yes. the fight on. <laughs> I know I know where this is going, yes. <laughs> there wasn't like, there's not like eight hours in between. <laughs> getting home at midnight and turning the fight on no i uh you know i was kind of uh adren- adrenaline adrenalized pumping. yes exactly I was say. um yeah, but well. to be fair the second half of ruiz joshua uh was was a struggle for me uh i uh, i i got through it but uh the the eyelids were fighting hard to move downward and uh, i may have i may have blink missed a few moments here and there and did kind of rewatch the last couple of rounds uh, the next day but more or less okay. stayed awake Oddly enough, that's also Andy Ruiz's experience of the fight. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. All right. uh, Looking ahead. Hey, the uh, 2020 class of inductees for the International Boxing Hall of Fame was released last week. And later on in this podcast, we will look at that. Um, We will also preview a packed card on ESPN next Saturday, headlined by the return of Terence Crawford. We will look back at Saturday's Showtime Championship boxing card in Brooklyn uh, that Eric mentioned, uh, which saw middleweight Jamal Charlo stop challenger Dennis Hogan in seven. But that, all of that, all that has gone before is, of course, just burying the lead. Uh, The main story of the week, of course. Anthony Joshua gaining revenge over Andy Ruiz Jr., boxing his way to a 12-round unanimous decision on DAZN uh, six months after Ruiz scored the massive upset with a knockout in New York. Um, Eric, when we previewed this fight last week, 
I said that AJ to win would need to jab and move and clinch whenever possible to show us his inner Vladimir Klitschko to win this time and look good the next, which is what he did even to the point of actually talking with Vladimir Klitschko and getting advice from him uh, during a camp, apparently. Um, But even though we knew what he needed to do, I think it's probably fair to say that we were both at best uncertain or unconvinced about whether he could do it, certainly for 12 rounds. Um, So how impressed were you, not only with AJ's game plan, but with his execution of it? And watching it on actually on Saturday night slash Sunday morning, uh, (laughs) do you feel, actually, as I do a little bit, that maybe we're seeing a case perhaps of a fighter maybe getting that little bit better as a result of a loss? Mm, I'm not sold on on that part. Let me, let me, let me circle back around to that because the easier, the, the other part is easier to address that uh, definitely he had the right game plan and his execution was outstanding and full credit to Joshua for doing exactly what he needed to do to avenge the loss and beat this particular opponent. Uh, and, and this was the game plan he and his team indicated he had in the buildup to the fight. Mm-hmm. It's the game plan you recommended. It's the game plan you figured he had when you found out they had themselves a 22 by 22 ring. Right. Uh, and it's the game plan you knew for damn sure he had when he came in about 10 pounds lighter than usual at the weigh-in. Uh, that weight made me a little concerned he'd overtrained, um, but it, it certainly spelled out that his plan was to box and move and give himself his best opportunity to do that without running out of gas. He used his legs perfectly. His jab was on point. His right hand landed often enough, and it was spectacular when it landed. A lot of good heavyweights would have gone Mm -hmm. down from some Mm -hmm. of those shots that Ruiz walked through. Uh, AJ did exactly what he needed to do to avoid exchanging punches at close range with Ruiz and allowing Ruiz's hand speed advantage to come into play the way it did the first time. He still got wobbled a couple of times, but never anything too serious. Um, It was an all-around outstanding performance by Joshua. Um, I am concerned, though, in the sense that I don't want another Klitschko. Uh, The the Klitschko era sucked. I'm sorry, but it it did. Uh, So my hope is that Joshua has discovered this new dimension, this safety first dimension, and he will bust it out on occasion when he needs it and not make it a regular thing. Um, So to get get back to your question of whether he became better as the result of a loss, I think he added some wrinkles. He got in great shape. I don't know if he's actually better. And I don't want to step on the toes of our upcoming discussion of his place in the current heavyweight division. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Let's just say for now that I don't think he's at the very top. Um, He answered a lot of questions in this fight. Full credit to him. But for me, a lot of questions still remain. Speaking of having questions about a fighter, let's talk about Andy Ruiz. Uh, As we said, Joshua executed his game plan well, but Ruiz didn't exactly make it hard for him. From the moment he weighed in at 283 pounds, 15 pounds heavier than last time, even if he was wearing sneakers, sweats, and a sombrero, there was... I think it's fair to say a widespread sinking feeling. I kind of tried to write it off as, well, Andy Ruiz is a guy who can be both fat and in shape at the same time. (laughs) But then you saw him in the ring with his shirt off, and it wasn't a pretty sight. Uh, He still managed to go all 12 rounds, so he was in better shape than maybe his belly suggested. But he admitted afterward that he didn't train like he should have, which 
hey, you know, it's only the heavyweight championship of the world. So how disappointed were you with his effort, Kieran? And uh, and both fighters talked afterward about doing a rubber match. Do you have any interest in seeing that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the moment there was something about that. I think I made an involuntary guttural ugh. <laughs> once we actually saw him in the ring and once he's i'm like oh that's not good right um yeah i don't know if you saw uh uh design did a documentary about the first fight i think it was called yes. one night did you yeah, see that saw it. yep uh, I, I thought it was very good and um mike, mike tyson stole the show on that thing he was fantastic wasn't yes. he he was he was excellent but then what had me thinking about it was the fact that they had buster douglas on there which it turns out was a fabulous piece of foreshadowing right um yeah, and again, I don't want to take anything away from Anthony Joshua. Whenever you criticize a guy who loses, you know, it's, it, never want to take anything away from the, from the from the person who won. And and as you said, he did everything Joshua that he needed to do, and then some. He got himself into tremendous shape, changed his approach to training, adopted a disciplined game plan. Um, there were plenty of people who wondered whether it had all become too comfortable for for him, AJ, and whether he still had the fire burning inside him. And he proved clearly that he does. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ruiz did not. Um, You know, the only fire that was burning for him uh, since June was was whatever was keeping the backyard barbecue going, apparently. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and yeah, he came out with all these stories pre-fight about the way that, hey, I was wearing these extra clothes. Oh, I think it'll make me strong, yada, yada. And then, like you said, he, he admitted afterward that uh, he'd partied too much and, and trained too little um and then also at that post-fight press conference his trainer manny robles said oh we didn't expect joshua to move around so much which i have a really hard time believing because like we just said we predicted exactly that joshua would do that and we we're idiots so I, can't, <laughs> I have a really hard time i i wonder if that's just i can't believe that manny robles is a good trainer really believes that they weren't expecting joshua to move around that much i think he might have just been protecting his fighter a bit there yeah um so. yeah i mean it was Look, it was a dreadful, slovenly approach by by Ruiz. It was, it was, it was unintelligent and, and arrogant and unathletic in the ring, and it was disrespectful, frankly, in the build up to it. It's disrespectful to himself, to fans, to to his opponent. Um, it was hard, that said, to not also feel this sort of humanity and honesty of it, of his of his confession. Um, I, I don't know him; I've never met him, but he, he comes across as a very honest and likable guy and and he seemed to still be very honest when you know in that press when he when it almost sort of felt as if the realization of how badly he'd screwed up kind of descended on him and you know and if i suddenly found 15 million dollars dropping into my lap i i don't know i can't honestly say that the the i wouldn't be letting it go a little bit um and he's hardly the only boxer to do that right, right. um especially in the aftermath of a big win i mentioned buster douglas you know roberto duran Famously did it after his win over Sugar Ray Leonard, which was part of the reason why, you know, he ended up probably turning around and saying no mass in the, in the rematch. Um, the reason Lennox Lewis needed a rematch with Hasim Rachman was because he didn't take the first fight seriously. Um, even Sugar Ray Robinson lost to Randy Turpin, partly because he was drinking his way around right. France or whatever. Um, but that said, actions have consequences. And, and apart from Douglas... You know, with all those names I just mentioned, that lack of focus was considered an aberration and it was sort of addressed later on. And Ruiz, prior to the first fight with Joshua, was known primarily for being fat. Yes, people in boxing knew that he had fast hands and legit skills, but the casual observer would look at him and just go, hey, that guy's fat. Um, and not only... And he had the... With the first fight, he, he kind of showed that there was something more to him and he had the chance to do that again. But instead of giving lie to that perception that he's just, you know, this, this fat guy, he just he doubled down on it on the biggest 
stage that he's had in his career. So if he does use this as a reality check and rededicates himself, he can he can still get big fights. He's still a dangerous fighter, mm-hmm. and he's still a legit heavyweight. Um, but he's not at the top table anymore. He's at the the Luis Ortiz table, the Alexander Povetkin table, um, the the one below. And and for all that talking about a third fight, uh, it's not going to happen. Um, I don't want to see it. I suspect you don't want to see it. I, I I'm sure very few people want to see it. And he doesn't deserve for it to happen. Um, you know, Joshua was very nice afterward when he said in the ring, you know, uh, they could do it a third time. But, you know, I think he would have been justified in taking a page out of Lewis's book and just when Lennox just laughed in the face of Hasim Rachman when Rachman said, hey, let's do it a third time. Lennox was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ruiz needs to get back in line and prove, I think, that the next time fans spend money on airfare and tickets and hotel rooms for one of his fights that he won't let them down by getting himself into such terrible shape. So Yeah. And I just on the subject of of his body, I'm still mystified by that photo that went around a few months ago I... of him sitting uh, on the side of the ring with Michael Hunter. I assume you, you know the one I'm talking about. Yep. You've seen it where he looked like he was in the best shape of his life. I don't know exactly when the photo was taken, but it just I don't I don't quite get what happened that after so... winning the title, he got in some kind of shape and then got all the way out of that shape. That's what it sounded like. I, I feel like I saw a quote from him and possibly from that post-fight press conference that said something to the effect of that, that, yeah, like he was dedicated and he got into it and he just couldn't keep at it. Like, mm-hmm. I, I suspect it was one of those deals where suddenly he had a much bigger bunch of people who wanted to hang out with him than had previously been the case. And that, you know, maybe he initially started to be dedicated and then the check cleared. <laughs> right or something i right. don't know i don't know it's really odd wasn't it it's yeah. like because when we were talking with Breadman last week and saying look it looks like both guys are going to be slimmer and i think that's what we all thought was going to be the case so right. yeah that's that's really strange i certainly don't know well you know it's almost as bad as the you know the guy who should have been fighting oscar valdez who apparently you know put on eight eight pounds in the final two days of fight week or right. something yeah so. fights fights not long after thanksgiving are apparently dangerous <laughs> for some people <laughs> So, apparently so. Um, so, look, if Ruiz doesn't get that third fight, and he won't, um, then what happens next for AJ? Uh, so, obviously, it didn't take long before the alphabet body started muscling in on the action. Um, one of them wants Joshua to defend against Kubrat Pulev next. Uh, one of them wants to defend against Alexander Usyk next. Uh, one of those is, tr- is intriguing. Um, do you have any thoughts or insight on whether either is the likely next opponent? And also, to, you know, we touched on this just now, you know, where does AJ fit in the whole scheme of things? Do you see anything on Saturday night that makes you feel maybe any differently now about how AJ might fare against either Tyson Fury or Deontay Wilder? So my assumption is that Pulev is probably next. He's been oh. waiting longer as a mandatory. Um, I'm hearing some buzz about Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which uh, you can confirm this, but it sounds to me like a place where soccer is played. Yes. Well, that, that depends if you've seen Tottenham Hotspur recently. <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> uh, laugh along as if I know what you're talking about you while go. my inside voice is regretting even mentioning it. So I'll move on. Uh, but yeah, if that's the fight, if it's Pulev, that's fine. After the year he just had, I'm fine with AJ taking on a good but not great heavyweight like Pulev in his next fight. Um, 
but yeah, the bigger of the questions you just posed uh, is uh, the the Fury Wilder comparison, and I see Joshua as a clear underdog against either of those yeah. guys. Not a hopeless underdog. He'd have a, a shot, of course, uh, but to me. In the heavyweight division right now, you have a 1A and a 1B, and then a clear number three yeah. until otherwise indicated. Um, obviously, you know Joshua took Ruiz's punches better this time than he did in the first fight, but he still wobbled enough that I just can't imagine him lasting a bunch of rounds with Deontay Wilder. Right. If that fight happens, Joshua's plan, I think, should be to be aggressive and hope to knock Wilder out before Wilder can knock him out. And he might be able to do it. Joshua's probably the hardest puncher Wilder has ever faced, including Luis Ortiz. But I'd make Wilder at least a 2-1 to one favorite over him right now. And, and same with Fury. As impressive as Joshua's boxing was on Saturday night, he ain't outboxing Tyson Fury. Yeah. Um, it's funny, he's probably the best combination of boxing and punching ability of the three. But... Fury and Wilder are both so good at the things they do well. Yeah. I just couldn't come close to picking Joshua in either fight right now. Uh, and, and the fact that he was boxing so cautiously against Ruiz. And look, it, it's the right game plan for the situation. But it doesn't instill confidence in me beyond this one very efficient win that he had. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the thought that came to me, I mean, he, he fought absolutely the right fight because if you talked about last week, the one thing you don't want to do with Andy Ruiz is be inside because his, his punches are, are that much faster. Because the difficulty with Wild, Wilder is that if you try to box him and stay on the outside, boy, that just lets Deontay get his leverage on those long mm -hmm. punches. That's going to be perfect for him, which means somehow you've got to get through them to get in the, the inside. And, and yeah, that's, that's, that's tricky. I agree with you. I, I agree with you very much, actually, that I would make... Not a hopeless underdog, but definitely an underdog against both those guys. Right. All right. Well, there were a couple of other heavyweight fights on the undercard. Uh, Dillian White outpointing Marius Vak over 10, uh, both attempting to rival Ruiz for jiggliest physique, uh, yeah. although they do have to settle for a distant second and third place. Um, and Michael Hunter and Alexander Povetkin battling to a 12-round draw in what was mostly an entertaining fight. Anything mm -hmm. of note or interest to you from either or both of those? Uh, yeah, the one thing I wanted to know about the white, the white and Vak thing, well, specifically about white, is once again just how, and we've touched on this a couple of times, how appallingly that whole situation has been handled around Dillian White's positive drug test. Um, first of all, after he, he the test, he's allowed to fight Oscar Rivas without the Rivas camp being informed. Right. Then he's allowed to fight Vak, and then on the eve of the fight, or maybe even the morning of the fight, the Vak fight, the United Kingdom anti-doping authority says, oh, yeah, you know, it turns out that probably Dillian White's explanation was fine. Uh, we're dropping our case. Um, everybody involved was done wrong by UCAD and, and the way that that whole thing was, was handled. And, you know, Rivas could have had tremendous, suffered tremendous uh, physical harm. Um, you know, White suffered tremendous reputational harm, potentially. I mean, I just, the way that, that, that this should have taken so long and have been so opaque... Mm -hmm. is it's just it's just appalling and, and like i said before it's one thing if you're trying to you know not mess with somebody's career if they're playing tennis or or, or running track but this is boxing and, and that was just appallingly done um uh as for that fight itself uh, I, white labored more against Vak than i would have expected in advance but obviously a large part of that was i think he was 271 or something right. um I, given the circumstances that he had the late call up, the fact that he was suspended, I probably didn't know what was going on. Um, it, it's somewhat explicable uh, 
upset he he looked the way he did um but uh, i was like yourself i was <clears throat> generally uh, entertained in the co-main i i keep expecting povetkin to sort of begin reaching the end of the road but even though his career to me feels as if it's been so much less than it could or should have been um he just he's always there isn't he he shows skill he shows strength he shows speed he shows you know real veteran guile and for me even though i sort of thought that michael hunter might win the fight um with it with his speed and his boxing ability I, that Povetkin looked good enough that it made hunter's performance all the more impressive for me i i thought he sat down on his punches much more than i thought he would obviously decided that he needed to get Povetkin's respect um you know and he could perhaps consider himself a tad unlucky not to have gotten the win and and given you know uh, that Povetkin has, has not been in that position against anyone except the very 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 best uh augurs reasonably well i think for for a hunter's performance as a, as a heavyweight uh i would like to see that fight again i'd be sure. quite happy i'd be really quite happy to see that again i don't know that there's necessarily a better opponent for either man right now i'd i'd be pretty happy to see them go at it yeah i think both guys looked good and fought pretty well i mean you could say that uh you know pavetkin maybe showed hunter's ceiling is not at the very top of the division sure uh, but he certainly showed that he can compete with you know, solid contenders right. at heavyweight. And as far as Povetkin not quite hitting that wall still, yeah, what, he's 40 now, right? Um, so. And uh, yeah, so it's, you know, I don't, I don't want to say it's a sort of a, a 40 is the new 30 situation, uh, but 40 is the new 38 maybe for him. He looks <laughs> it looks a little bit better that, than his age. And um, just one thing I wanted to say, I didn't find a good opportunity to interject last week when you uh, uh, were, were giving Povetkin a bit of a hard time for being boring in the, the Huey Fury fight. Um, but what I considered jumping in to say is that I 99% blame Huey Fury for yeah. that one. Um, Povetkin, as heavyweights go, I'd say he makes decent fights. Um, th- this was certainly a good, solid, evenly matched one. Povetkin and Hunter are both you know, really sturdy bottom half of the top 10 heavyweights right now, yeah. uh, which means that you know, we might have had five of the 10 best heavyweights right now on one card, uh, which is a pretty, pretty unique thing. That's true. That's true. Um, uh, we will get to the Showtime Championship Boxing triple header uh, shortly. Before we do, we should note the other major action on Saturday night in Puebla, Mexico. Manuel Navarrete continued his tremendous recent run. Uh, with a fourth-round KO of Francisco Orta to retain his junior featherweight belt. And in the co-main on that card, excellent young Filipino junior bantamweight Joanne Ancajas retained his strap with a sixth-round TKO of Miguel Gonzalez, who did not succeed in becoming Chile's second uh, belt holder. Um, Navarrete and Ancajas, two guys have had a very strong 2019, and they'll be looking forward to more of the same next year. Anything you want to add about uh, either of those performances? Yeah, I just I thought it was funny during the Navarrete fight. Uh, I think it was during the second round. Tim Bradley was talking about what it's going to take to beat Navarrete, and he said it's going to have to be a really excellent technical boxer, but also someone who can really punch. And also, he has to be really good at counter-punching. So basically, you need a flawless fighter who can do everything. Okay, easy enough. Um, I actually think, look, Navarrete is really good, but he can be a little wild. He was wild at times in this fight. I don't think he's going to be quite as hard to bump off as Tim Bradley maybe does. Uh, But whether he reigns for another five years or just another five months... I'm expecting to enjoy the ride. You know, it's yep. uh, fighting four times a year, all action every time. This guy is a gift to fight fans. Yeah. 
Uh, so that was one Saturday night card. Meanwhile, on Showtime Championship Boxing, Jamal Charlo remained undefeated, beating Dennis Hogan. He did not allow Dennis Amania to run wild, brother. Uh, he stopped Hogan <laughs> in the fourth. <laughs> Yeah, Dennis Amania. Not catchphrase. Not quite. Uh, not quite going to happen. But, uh, anyway, uh, I dropped him in the fourth, and then again definitively in the seventh to force a stoppage. Hogan had only been down once before in his career, and had recently come off a disputed loss to Jaime Munguia. So, how impressed were you with this win by Charlo? I was quite impressed. I mean, you and I both picked him to win by KO, but nonetheless, um, you know, obviously he was clearly bigger and stronger for all that you know we mentioned last week that Hogan had actually turned pro at light heavyweight he's, he's simply not physically on Charlo's level I thought um but there was also more to it than that um you know Hogan's an awkward opponent I really like the way that Morrow and Al referred to his style as improvisational jazz I thought that was great mm. bit of commentary um you know and he, he is he's hard to predict uh, he's hard to hit clean he's hard to counter um, and he is highly active. And when you're faced with somebody who moves a lot like that um, and who's also shorter than you, you know, the two key punches to focus on are, are the jab and an uppercut. And that's just what Charlo and Ronnie Shields focused on. And and especially that uppercut. Once he started timing uh, uh, Hogan and being able to land that 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 uppercut, that's everything else was able to sort of fall into place. Um setting him up ultimately for that fantastic very short uh hard left hook that put him down and essentially out in the seventh um i was really impressed with um you know how selective and consistent charlo's offense was you know he's it would be easy against an opponent like that to be you know throwing and 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 missing a lot and then just hoping you can get him whenever but but charlo was obviously trying to time him and trying to counter him and and he did so effectively he landed according to compu box 86 of 266 total punches which is 32 percent and he only got hit by 71 of 418 or 17 percent of dennis hogan so all that hogan activity was to a large extent for nor uh and it just showed to me how calm cool and collected charlo was in there so yeah i was definitely quite impressed um, so as we talked about, uh, Charlo had been taking the distance in his previous two contests. Um, he was pushed more than expected two fights ago by late replacement, uh, Matt Koroboff. Um, and as we discussed, a few folks even felt Koroboff maybe deserved that decision. And then last time out fighting in front of his hometown Houston fans, he went 12 rounds again, this time against Brandon Adams, although he swept all 12 rounds on two scorecards and took 11 of 12 on the other. So. Did he need a statement stoppage win like this? And was this the statement stoppage win that he needed? Would you even argue that this was one of the more impressive wins at the top end of the middleweight division this year? Or at the end of the day, do we have to take the step back and go, yeah, but Hogan was still kind of a blown up junior middleweight and no one had heard of him six months ago. Yeah, maybe a little bit on on that point. Uh, You know, but even if, you know, Hogan... It uh, doesn't quite have the the pedigree of of a guy like Charlo or the top guys in the division. He he's an awkward fighter and a tough fighter, a guy who was credible enough that last week when you and I were making our picks, we both struggled a bit with whether to yep. predict a knockout or a distance fight. And, and Breadman said the same thing. Uh, he said, you know, Hogan can't win, but he wasn't sure whether to bet on Charlo to knock him out or or to win a decision. So look, you can only fight the guy in front of you, and yep. even if he's a B level guy. Charlo beat him as impressively as you possibly could. Uh, it's a good win. It's it's a statement. It's a reminder that Charlo is in the mix when you're talking about who's the best 160-pounder in the world. Um, you asked where does this win fit in with others at the top of the middleweight division in 2019? 
Uh, I guess, you know, you got like Canelo's win over Jacobs. That was more impressive in a way, just when you consider the quality of the opposition. Uh, Demetrius Andrade's win over Machet Suletsky was maybe a little better, considering that I rate Suletsky above Hogan. Uh, This was a good win. Charlo did everything you could ask him to do. He landed an uppercut that made Hogan do a backward somersault. Um, But... Uh, this isn't a fight I'm going to be telling my grandkids about or sure. anything like that. Sure. Um, so, good win for Charlo. Where does he go from here? It looks as if his next fight may be against Chris Eubank Jr. That was certainly the matchup that was on the table if Eubank could get past Matt Korobov in the co-main on Saturday. Well, he did that, uh, but not in the way he would have wanted or anyone would have predicted. Korobov retiring early in the second round after suffering a shoulder injury. Goes into the books as a TKO win for Eubank in his U.S. debut. Eubank said afterward that there was nothing to take from the fight because of how abbreviated it was. Uh, Kieran, uh, say Eubank took no- nothing from the fight. Did you take anything from it? Yeah, Matt Koroboff is snake bit. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> really, especially at the moment. I mean, you know, we, you know, we talked last week about how he seemed to be getting the short end of the close decisions. Um, and now this, I mean, you just have to feel for the guy. Look. Boxers, it's always worth repeating, are absurdly tough people with ridiculously high thresholds of pain. And and for all the booing of the crowd, that must have been a major injury. That must have hurt like hell to make a guy like Korobov pull up short like that. Um, mm-hmm. And good for Polly and Alamoro for calling out the booing crowd. Although, to be fair, my experience is that boxing crowds will boo just about anything except somebody <laughs> getting punched in the face. Um right. Um, I don't know what Chris Eubanks' comments about karma were all about afterwards. It's, it's kind of like the latest in a long line of weird stuff that comes from the mouths of him and his dad. But, you know, he may have just been really frustrated in the aftermath of, of, of going through a training camp and then that happening. Um, honestly, the only thing to say is it's just, it's just one of those situations where you just feel for everybody. You feel for Eubank, who put in a tough training camp and, you know, would, was dissatisfied. Korobov, who had a quite good opening first round. Yep. Um, and, and then that happened, uh, the guys who, you know, the fans who paid their money, um, you know, it's a physical sport and sometimes just weird stuff happens physically, but, uh, poor old Matt Korobov is, and especially, you know, he's a guy who's running out of time a little bit, um, to sort of make things happen. And, uh, yeah, you feel for the guy. I'm sure he must've been feeling terrible afterwards. Uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of him running out of time, I guess I would just uh, offer him the words of encouragement that uh, 37 is the new 35. So. <laughs> there you go, exactly. Um, uh, in the opening bout uh, of the card, a battle of former world titleists, Japanese junior featherweight, Ryusuke Iwasa dropping and stopping Marlon Tapales of the Philippines in the 11th round. Uh, Tapales might have been hindered a little by a swelling on the right side of his face, um, That result, which again is a sign of how tough boxes are. If like, that had happened to me, I'd be bawling like a baby <laughs> um you know and that resulted from an accidental third round headbutt that dropped him to one knee so much was the shock of the pain uh, and was mistakenly called the knockdown first six rounds seemed fairly even uh but then it felt as if awasa sort of took over a little bit using his height um and, and reach and skills uh, and you know the back nine of that fight uh but i thought the end of, even even with that even with awasa sort of starting to land quite frequently and take it over i don't know about you but the ending sort of felt quite sudden to me yeah somewhat i mean the the punch came from out of nowhere and tapales was looking sturdy until then but also he was taking a lot of punches yeah. his, his face was getting nasty uh it's just like you said a, a lot of close rounds in the first half of the fight um but then after that 
Awasa had won the last couple pretty clearly. So the, the damage was adding up before that somewhat sudden knockdown that uh, led to what I thought was an absolutely correct stoppage. Yeah. Uh, and the stoppage saved me from giving up more than one point uh, in our yeah. little picks competition since I had Tapalis and you had Awasa, but we both thought it would go the distance. And uh, yeah, so I was sitting there worrying you're going to get two points or three points or something like that. You only got one. I got zero. Uh, we tied on all the other fights. So my former lead of 63-59, four-point lead uh, is now... 66-63, a three-point lead with uh, one Showtime Championship boxing exactly card right to right go here. in 2019. It's all coming, it's all coming together. <laughs> You're cutting it awfully close here, my friend. That's all right. I saw for the drama. All right. <laughs> um, and if you're uh, listening to us talk about this Showtime card and thinking to yourself... I sure wish I'd been able to watch this, but I don't have Showtime. Uh, well, we have a special offer for you, a 30-day free trial of Showtime. If you don't already have Showtime, go to Showtime.com slash Try30, that's T-R-Y-3-0, and enter the code SHOWBOX, that's S-H-O-B-O-X, to start a 30-day free trial. Uh, but this offer expires December 31st, so uh, don't say we didn't warn you. Do it. Do it now. Uh, can, you tell I, can you tell I've been going through the Arnold Schwarzenegger catalog with my son? Uh, anyway, once again, go to Showtime.com slash Try30 to take advantage of this special offer. All right. I, was, I thought it was more Rainier Wolf Castle, actually. <laughs> well, Rainier Wolf Castle is uh, so. somewhat influenced and inspired by Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think. Indeed. Exactly. Yeah. But still. Um, <laughs> all right. The big fight next weekend is at the Mecca of Boxing, Madison Square Garden on Espen. Um, it's a three-fight uh, main card. Uh, the main event sees the return of Terence Brad Crawford as he takes on Egegis Mean Machine Kavaloskis. Um For fans of Crawford, there's when well, we've touched on this plenty, of course, there's surely some degree of frustration that Errol Spence gets big money and headline-grabbing bouts with the likes of Mikey Garcia and Sean Porter, while Crawford has to contend with the remains of Amir Khan and now Kavaloskis. But the machine is undefeated. Record of 21-0-1, including 17 KOs. Um, that said, there aren't really any names of note on his record. Uh, his one draw came in his most recent bout. Um, what can you tell us about the Lithuanian? And should fans actually be a bit more excited for this contest than maybe they are? No. Not really. Uh, uh, the only reason to be excited for this is because Crawford is great, and you should always be at least a little bit excited to watch Bud Crawford fight. Uh, not to be confused with Tulsa Police Chief Judd Crawford. Uh, ah. but, but enough about that. Wrong network. They don't televise <laughs> boxing. So anyway, beyond the fact that uh, I would watch Terrence Crawford versus a tumbleweed, uh, I can't get excited for this. Uh, Kavalaskis was... Maybe a little lucky to get the draw against Ray Robinson. He had a close one with Juan Carlos Abreu. Yeah. He's just not anywhere close to Bud Crawford's level. The fact that he's getting a title shot without having beaten a fellow contender, he's a mandatory challenger. He's ranked number one by an alphabet group. How? Why? He hasn't earned a top 20 ranking, never mind top one. Uh, but here we are, uh, and... It sucks for fight fans and for Crawford, who has really seen his 2019 go to waste yeah. uh, against, as you said, Amir Khan and now Mean Machine, while Spence and Porter and Thurman and Pacquiao and Garcia all get to fight each other. Um, I hope something changes for him in 2020, but uh, no, no, no reason to be excited for this matchup, in my view. Um, that said, the co-main is a different story. I know you're excited for this one. 
Teofimo Lopez, whom you selected in our under-25 draft a couple months ago, is up against a serious opponent, uh, and arguably he's in the first truly 50-50 fight of his young career as he takes on Richard Comey. Kieran, what are you expecting from this bout? Um, I expect this is probably going to be a, a compelling and quite possibly highly competitive fight. Um, I continue to maintain that Lopez has a very high ceiling, even though I know there are some doubts about that um, after he was taken the distance uh, by Masayoshi Nakatani last time out. Um, well, I think one of the things that intrigues me about this contest is, is firstly that Lopez is taken, taking it after just 14 pro fights, which says what a precocious talent he is. Um, uh, I love it because... You know, Lopez has been able to utterly dominate so many of his opponents. They look really spectacular doing so, largely because he's been so able to overwhelm them with his offense that he almost hasn't had to worry about anything that might come back his way. But uh, he almost certainly will be unable to do that against Comey. Comey's not the most spectacular of boxes. Um, I don't think that in terms of like pure talent, uh, he's on Lopez's level, but he's extremely capable, top level, experienced professional. Uh, I think he's going to make Lopez work for everything. Um, has this sort of experience and ability and guile to actually emerge with the win. This, this, I could, I could see this being, you know, kind of like a Marco Antonio Rubio, David Lemieux scenario you know the undefeated young gun looking sensational early but maybe floundering later as the veteran takes him into deep water but i can also see lopez being the other way around lopez being a bit respectful early on as he times the veteran and then you know once he gets his timing on point um you know really letting letting it go and looking quite spectacular in victory and i somewhat favor the the latter scenario but but not overwhelmingly so um the one issue that's kind of interesting is that there, there's a little, there are a few storm clouds around Teofimo Lopez. Um, as I think I've mentioned this before, Lopez's father comes across as kind of insane. Um, I think I think I mentioned to you that the the that prior to Teofimo having I don't know like his fourth or fifth pro fight, very early pro fight. Right. Um, I was at the way, the weigh in and and his dad came up to me and started telling me that his son was going to be greater than Muhammad Ali. Right. And and I was like, well, you know, that's great to have confidence in your kid bops but way to put the pressure on his shoulders you know um and since then you know senior's been talking about you know his boy whipping vasily lomachenko and other things um kevin ioli just posted an interesting piece on yahoo in which he noted that top rank have actually been pleading with junior to ditch senior as a trainer because they're worried about kind of the pressure that he's putting on him um what has happened instead is that Junior's brought in joey gamash as another voice uh in the corner but it's interesting this kind of thing the father-son dynamic, the, the weirdness in the corner, it is the kind of thing that can just, you know, when you need everything to be right in a big fight, if you only got those couple of percentage points off, that can make a bit of a difference. It's the kind of thing that can have an impact on a career. So I hope that gets sorted out and that that doesn't prove to be a bit of a factor here. But it's certainly something to keep an eye on, apparently. Yeah, and this is the kind of fight where you don't need any extra distractions to right. diminish you your chances by even 1%, because this, this is a tough fight. This, this is a fight that's going to answer the questions about Lopez that were raised in his last fight. Precisely, precisely. Uh, and the triple header opens with a previously scheduled and then postponed grudge match. Uh, Michael Conlon, undefeated Irish featherweight prospect, takes on Vladimir Nikitin, the man who controversially quote-unquote, defeated him in the Olympics in 2016, prompting a foul-mouth outburst from Conlon, without which he would probably not be as fated a prospect as he is. Um, we chatted about this a little bit beforehand, uh, this matchup, when it was originally scheduled. Uh, anything more that you would like to add? Uh, does it make me a bad podcaster if I say no? 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll add a tiny bit. I'll just say it's a, it's a meaningful fight on the way up for Conlon uh, because there's a storyline. Um, but I don't consider him an A-level pro prospect uh, based on what I've seen so far. So, you know, it's a good show opener. Nothing more than that, really. Agreed. All right, let's move on to the news. We keep lamenting week after week that we haven't heard the last of this news story that we're going to start with here. And, uh, well, yeah, we still haven't. As of right now, as we record this podcast on a Monday night, Daniel Jacobs is still scheduled to face Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. in Arizona on December 20th. However, we all know that Chavez was suspended by Nevada, where the bout was originally slated to take place for missing a drug test. And the Nevada State Athletic Commission has threatened to suspend promoter Eddie Hearn's license if he goes ahead with the contest. And now Chavez has filed suit against Nevada in an attempt to ensure the fight goes ahead. Kieran, want to update us on what is still presumably not the final chapter of this saga? So according to a story that posted recently on Boxing Scene, uh, on December 2nd, Chavez's lawyer filed an official complaint, as you noted, against the Nevada State Athletic Commission, uh, seeking a temporary injunction to allow the fight to proceed. And so I guess, from what I understand from this Boxing Scene piece, a central element of his argument is that it is unlawful for Nevada to suspend Chavez because he doesn't presently have a Nevada license. The argument being, you can't suspend me if I don't have a license. Neener, neener. Um... Whether or not such a suit, I, I, I'm no lawyer, I have no idea about the legitimacy of that, nor do I know whether such a suit necessarily impacts on Nevada's threat to suspend Hearn's license. Um, I could still see a situation, as you and I have talked about, in which Hearn figures, my God, why am I, why am I risking all of this for Julio Cesar Chavez? Um, uh, and maybe promises Chavez another day, or maybe Arizona saves Hearn, and because Arizona still has to license Chavez and it's got a hearing on December 18th, which is just two days before the scheduled fight. So maybe Hearn will be lucky and Arizona won't grant Chavez a license until all of this is sorted out. Um, I still suspect that if you've got a Jacob Chavez fight poster, hang on to it because it'll be a collector's <laughs> item. Um, I, I still think we'll see Jacob's Rosado or something else. But we shall see. Speaking of which, I still have my Holyfield Akinwande t-shirt. <laughs> wow. I, I bet it's worth whatever a t-shirt, an unopened t-shirt is worth. Wow. That's, if that. Wow. Yeah. Hashtag nerd. <laughs> wow. When what? I don't, I don't even remember You don't that, remember that? It was no. uh, 1998. I couldn't tell you the exact month. It was supposed to be at the Garden. Um, I guess maybe that's the fight that got replaced uh, a few, a couple months later with Holyfield Von Bean, perhaps, if oh, wow. I'm remembering correctly, okay. or maybe it happens after the Von Bean fight. But anyway, it got canceled uh, the weekend of, like maybe the day before the weigh-in, because Akinwande had some sort of hepatitis issue. Uh, good old hugging Henry. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, well, uh, in other news, we learned during Saturday Showtime broadcast that Danny Garcia will return to the network on January 25th. Uh, and I don't meant to get all Sammy the Shill here, but I makes uh, three pretty good Showtime cards in a few weeks uh, to close out 2019 and ring in 2020. Uh, we've got Javante Davis against Uriokis Gamboa to close out the year on December 28th. Uh, Clarissa Shields against Ivana Habazin hopefully, uh, <laughs> on January 10th, and then Garcia a couple weeks 
uh, after that. Uh, Garcia said that he didn't know who that opponent would be on January 25th, but Keith Eidek reported on Twitter earlier today on Monday that it's likely to be Ivan Redkak. Uh, and apparently the Barclays Center uh, Twitter account uh, appeared to confirm that until they took the tweet down. So uh, somebody may have pressed post a little bit too soon. Uh, there's been a little bit of a backlash to this matchup on Twitter. Um, and of course, Garcia has long been a favorite target of the peanut gallery, which has never yes. really forgiven him for Rod Salka. Um, <laughs> but am I alone? Am I uh, missing something? Thinking this actually isn't a terrible opponent for someone who's had one fight in about 14 months and is hoping to get a shot at Manny Pacquiao next, or should we be expecting a bit more from Danny Garcia? Well, I mean, there's a very clear A-side and B-side here. It's one of those kind of fights, but I still think it, it, it's solid. And the important thing to me is that it appears to be leading somewhere for right. Danny Garcia, that, that he seems to be zeroing in on potentially being that Manny Pacquiao opponent. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think this is fine as a as a get back in the ring, get busy. And I'm glad it's uh, on Showtime. Business is picking up on Showtime as we get ready to flip the calendar. That's right. All right. Um... Finally, as we mentioned at the top of the show, the International Boxing Hall of Fame announced its 2020 class last week. Uh, as expected, it was packed. Some uh, expected inductees, some maybe less so. Uh, in the modern fighters category, Bernard Hopkins and Juan Manuel Marquez were inducted in their first year of eligibility, as anticipated. They will be joined in Canastota next year by Sugar Shane Mosley. And the first ever modern women's inductees will be Christy Martin and Lucia Rijka. Uh Eric... Are you at all surprised that Rika and not Leila Ali is entering alongside Martin in the first year uh, of, of that class? And also, any surprise that voters apparently chose not to demerit Mosley at all for his admitted PED use? Um, also, given that this was the first year in which more than three uh, in the moderns could be admitted if they passed the vote threshold, any surprise that the likes of Carl Frotch and Tim Bradley and Sergio Martinez or a holdover like Rafael Marquez didn't make it with those top three? Huh, that's a lot of questions. A lot of slow, slow down realized, here. Sorry, mate. I'm starting to do a lot. <laughs> just realized that there. Yeah. Uh, that's all right. I can handle it. I'm up to it. Uh, right. Let me take the the women first. Um, yes, that that was my only surprise. Uh, and uh, with 2020 hindsight, it makes some sense. Uh, I just thought on name value and yeah. on actually, frankly, having achieved more as a professional boxer, uh, Layla. I thought would be the easy second pick and Riker would get in next year. Um, Riker was probably better though. Uh, and she did come first. She, she fought before Layla and uh, she's regarded as a legend of the sport, even if she never got to have a remotely defining pro fight. And even if she was a key part of the most overrated boxing movie ever, million dollar baby. Um, I think it's uh, perfectly cool that she's getting in before Layla. I just didn't see it coming. Um, as for the PED issue, no, no surprise. As I think we discussed, uh, there's just as much of a cloud around Marquez as there is mm. around Mosley. Um, it's just that only one of them admitted to anything. But it just seems the boxing hall isn't anywhere near as holier than thou about PEDs mm. as the Baseball Hall of Fame. Mosley clearly put together a Hall of Fame resume with or without that one fight. These are the exact three modern fighters that we were certain would get in. And as we discussed beforehand, there were too many other fighters in close competition for fourth place on this ballot for any right. one of them to hit that. I believe it's an 80% threshold. I, so. yeah. um, I voted Rafael Marquez. I Good sure point. hope he gets in eventually. But, you know, for every guy like me and you voting for him, 
there's another voter voting for Bradley and another one for Sergio. So, yeah, there was no chance at a fourth inductee this year. This is exactly what we predicted. And it's probably more of the same next year. Uh, The ballot, I think, will include Mayweather, Klitschko, Andre Ward, and Cotto. I believe so. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So... I think now, so we might see four guys next year. We might be yeah. those four, but I think the wait continues for these non-slam dunk guys on this year's ballot. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, in the non-participants category, Kathy Duva, Lou DiBella, and the late Dan Goosen will all be inducted, and those are the exact three I voted for, so I felt great about that result. In the observers category, Bernard Fernandez and Thomas Hauser will be inducted. Uh, Bernard is a longtime friend and colleague, and I've known Tom Hauser a while as well, both outstanding writers. I will say publicly that I did not vote for either of them, not because they aren't Hall of Fame worthy, but because my votes went to two TV executives, Jay Larkin and Seth Abraham. Um, I have some thoughts and theories, but first, g- give me your thoughts on these observers and non-participants. Um, so, uh, as, as did you, I voted for all three of Goose and Duva and, and Debella, and they're all fully deserving, and I'm actually really pleased. It's one of those classes that you look at that and go, yeah, I'm really pleased about that. Yep. Like, that's right. All of those people deserve to be in there, and the only thing to not be pleased about is that Dan doesn't get to enjoy it himself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, we were allowed to submit five votes in that category, um, and I used all of my votes. Oh, okay. Because um, I, I also voted for two people who... I also think thoroughly deserve to be in the hall and I hope will be soon at some point. And that's Miguel Diaz and, and Margaret Goodman. And um, I hope at some point they, they do get in. Uh, as for the observers, I also, like you, voted for Jay uh, and Seth, um, uh, who should 100% be in the hall. And uh, like you, as you expressed when we were talking about this, I, I would love for them to just go in together. It just seems right for them yes. to go in together. Um, there's a couple of others who didn't get in who I also think are really hall worthy and I'm going to vote for. Um, in that category uh, until they get in. And that's our friend Bob Canobio, the co-founder of CompuBox, and John Shepard, the founder of BoxRec. I mean, those two guys, between them, I mean, between them, CompuBox and BoxRec have just, like, transformed the way that fans, media, and, and others in and around the business sort of consume information about and, and seek information about the sport. Uh, they, to me, those contributions are the definition of, of, of being in the Hall of Fame. I'm going to keep voting for them. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right about both of those guys. Um, so, so what I wanted to just touch on is that uh, when we had Ed Brophy on, I asked half jokingly about uh, you and I getting into the Hall of Fame Sunday, <laughs> and he, uh, he he gave a very kind and diplomatic answer, uh, not treating the question as a joke or a half joke. Uh, but this vote tells me that boxing writers who make up a good portion of the electorate like voting for other boxing writers. Yeah. Uh, so, well, I still don't sit here, you know, thinking that I'm a favorite to make the Hall of Fame someday. The fact is that if you do it long enough and well enough as a boxing writer or a podcaster who used to write, uh, you have a chance. Um, but I'm particularly excited for Bernie Fernandez. Really a great guy and very fun to have the two Philadelphia Bernards going in together. Ah, there you go. Yeah, that will be fun. That will be uh, a a good part of that weekend. So, um, yeah, and uh, really with these changes, uh, the Hall of Fame weekends are just going to get more and more packed and more more fun for Mm -hmm. several years, I think. So, Uh, and again, as I mentioned, if you're listening and you've ever had the opportunity to get to Canastota and be there for a Hall of Fame weekend, it's definitely an opportunity to take at least once. It's it's a really really fun experience. I strongly recommend it. I'm sure I'm, I know you endorse that. Absolutely. I uh, I think you and I need to uh, start talking about a little field trip. Uh, I June, think so. June 2020. 
I think so. I yeah. think so. All right, that will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Don't forget to start a 30-day free trial of Showtime. Go to showtime.com slash try30 and enter the code SHOWBOX. But don't forget... This offer expires December 31st. Uh, We will be back next week to look at the big ESPN card uh, at the Garden and to look ahead to Daniel Jacobs possibly facing off against Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. or Gabe Rosado or Eric. Um, (laughs) Until then, thanks for listening.